Welcome to uh, today's class. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, as a reminder always, uh, grateful to be doing this on uh, Facebook. But remember too, if you ha don't catch it here, that it's also available on uh, YouTube as well under LDS Discussions uh, with Kevin Hinckley. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you for hitting like and sharing and all of that stuff that, that uh, we want done. So thanks so much. Uh, interesting class today. Um, we're going to talk a bit about something we're going to call uh, divine trade-offs. This is uh, something what, that was uh, suggested by a, an LDS author that we're going to talk about in a second. But I think we're always in a, in a state of having to decide um, of all the things that we have to do, which things do we choose to do and which things do we not. And how that really kind of affects our uh, eternal question. Uh, before we do though, let, let, let me go back and, and answer a question that uh, was posed to me that I, I think is, is worth something. And, and maybe the best way to do it is to describe um, that uh, over the years I've had a, uh, several clients, uh, more than several, that were going to come in and they're going to worry about uh, a family member, a spouse, a friend, somebody that has either uh, done something that they shouldn't or they seem to be on a bad road or they've left the church or whatever it is where they feel like they're making choices that may cause them to mourn and they're worried really about their place uh, in the eternities and what will the eternities look like. And my, my standard answer, as a number of you know, is uh, I, I have a great belief in the incredible mercy of God uh, and, and the, the importance of relationships after this life. And so I'm usually pretty quick to say, well, look, uh, even after this life, let's give Jesus a thousand years um, with your son or your daughter or, or your friend. Let's see how that turns out. Uh, my money is basically on the Savior, uh, as in section, section uh, 121, to talk about uh, the, the uh, by love and gentle persuasion, that he can't force anybody to heaven, but he can certainly provide love where they can begin to see things and have the scales removed from their eyes and begin to make uh, necessary changes in their life uh, that will draw them closer to him. Like a loving parent, he never gives up. And he will always love and try and lovingly persuade uh, to get people there. Uh, now, sometimes what happens, though, is that people will reach then and say, well, that sounds good, but I was reading the, in the Book of Mormon. Um, and if you look in uh, Alma uh, 34, you have Amulek saying, for behold, this life is the time to prepare for, for men to meet God. And behold, the day of this life is the day for men to perform their labors. And then he says, for after, after this day of life, which is given to us to prepare for eternity, that's part of what this is, behold, if we do not improve our time well in this life, then cometh the night of darkness, wherein there can be no labor performed. Now, Oftentimes that, that gets interpreted to mean then if it doesn't happen in this life, it becomes everlastingly too late, which is another term that uh, the Book of Mormon uses. 
And I have to sometimes kind of walk us back just a little bit. Uh, if we allow for what President Nelson has talked about, an ongoing restoration of light and knowledge and the church, then in a lot of ways we are ahead and we have greater knowledge and understanding than they would have had at the time of Alma and Amulek. So just as a reminder, when you run into these kind of things in the Book of Mormon, um, recognize that, for instance, in this case, when take Amulek, for example, Amulek, who, after a period of time of being inactive, is now teaching, but he's teaching in 74 B.C., 74 B.C. Well, why is that really important? Well, in 74 B.C., recognize that Jesus' uh, death on the cross and his resurrection are still over a, a hundred years away. Because we think about his death on the cross and then the resurrection, and then he's going to go down into uh, this, the spirit world, and he's going to teach, and he's going to organize missionary work, as President Joseph F. Smith saw, and that they will then begin the missionary work of performing labors in the spirit world. And all of that, brothers and sisters, is a hundred years away from when Amulek is teaching. So let me add one more on top of that. Not only is that true, but the keys of Elijah, where, where temple work and baptisms and things can be done by proxy in temples, the keys of Elijah are thousands of years away from being restored to Joseph Smith in the Kirtland Temple. So in 74 B.C., when, when Amulek is talking about the fact that this is the life that, that we need to repent, which is still true, but that no other labors can be performed after this life, that was true in 74 B.C. And the beautiful thing is, with added light and knowledge and the keys of, that have been restored to us, that is not true currently. Though we have progressed beyond where they were in 74 B.C. The problem sometimes, I think, is that we are reading in, in the Book of Mormon and we don't always see the, the progression of knowledge and understanding that we have over what they had in the Book of Mormon. When, when we look at canonized scripture, we want to say, well, everything that's true then is exactly true now. We have the same problem when we're reading uh, the Apostle Paul, that that was the world in which he was dwelling. And we have to look at those areas where additional knowledge has come that Paul didn't have, or Alma didn't have, or Amulek didn't have. That's why later Alma is going to say, I don't know about the afterlife. So I had to pray about it to find out how long they're going to be in this state. You know, He didn't know, and he's admitting that he doesn't know. But he's going to tell you what light and knowledge he's received, and that comes after 74 BC. That's a couple. That's a few years later when he's talking to his his sons. So let's not get completely locked in on that. Uh, so yes, in 74 BC, no labor can be performed after death. But the beautiful thing is now is that it can be performed and as we're going to give Jesus thousands of years to work with those uh, that we love after this life 
they're, they're going to have every possibility of hearing and accepting and changing their life uh, because those labors are be performing all the time. My money is on the Savior in this life and in the world uh, to come. So, okay, so that said, um, let, let's talk, uh, let's spend a few minutes and talk about choices. Uh, I love this. That came from a, uh, a little girl who is eight years old. And what she says is, when I turn a hundred years old, she had an assignment, what she would do when she's a hundred. When I turn a hundred years old, I will be tired of everything and everyone. So I will tell everyone that I'm going to Canada, but actually I'm going to the Bahamas. I'll live in a tiny hut with my tiny dog. I will order fish tacos when I'm hungry. Good choice. And I will live my best life, she says, with no crap. <laughs> this, this is a little girl that may be older than her time, or she's listened to her mom, uh, something. But uh, I, I love that idea of saying, when, when, I'm, when I'm 100 years old, I'm going to be in the best place where I can eat what I want to eat, and I don't want to be bothered with anybody else. <laughs> you, ever, you ever after a hard day kind of had those same kind of thoughts? Uh, yeah, I have too. So, so that said, I want to tell uh, a quick story, and I, I, think it's, I, I believe it was uh, told by Jay Golden Kimball. And, and he talked about the fact um, that while he was traveling in the woods in the south that he's going through the woods and he comes into a clearing obviously a, a, a farm and, and as he stood there in the clearing deciding when, if he was going to go talk to the farmer he watched a couple of big hound dogs that would uh, race across a clearing to one side of the trees and then they would race to another side of the trees and then they would race to another side of the trees, and they kept running back and forth. And he got really curious, and finally he sees the farmer, and he goes up and, and, and says, well, what's going on with your dogs? And the old farmer says, ah. Oh. He says, uh, a little while back I hurt my leg, and I couldn't move much. And he says, so when it was feeding time, I put their feet in, this, in a wooden bucket, and then I just banged the, my, something on the bucket, and they'd come running to get fed. He says, since that time, the woodpeckers are driving them crazy. Um, and, and so every time they would hear woodpeckers pecking away somewhere in there, they'd be running to that, and then would run over here, and they'd run over there. Okay? Now, think about how many times in your life that maybe you feel a lot like those dogs, and the woodpeckers are driving you crazy the woodpeckers of I'm supposed to be doing this and I'm supposed to be doing that and I need to be doing that and then I've got to run over here and take care of this because I'm getting called over here and we might feel very much like that and and part of what drives that sense of we're running around uh, as we're going to talk about is that at the core of that we start taking a look at our choices and believe that we basically have two choices and one is good and one is bad. And we are constantly trying to do the good thing and, and avoid the bad. Well, that, the, the problem with that, of course, as we know, is that we have to determine 
what we think is bad and what we think is good. What some people are running to across to a clearing, that woodpecker is different from what your woodpecker is. So, for example, if, if, if to someone who is a perfectionist, who is driven uh, almost by an unhealthy need to do everything right and do everything perfectly, and you know who you are, uh, and you're having to go crazy from one thing to another and then worried that what you're doing over here was actually the best thing you could have been doing. To a, perfect, to a perfectionist, bad is this obsessive fear about making the wrong choice. What if you did it wrong? What if that isn't the way it's supposed to turn out? Uh, what if you did it but it wasn't uh, good enough? Uh, I had a client of mine who was a beautiful painter and her paintings were never completely done, but at some point, you know, to make some money, she had to be able to put her paintings in a, in a, in a gallery where somebody could come and, and want to buy it. But she was so driven by the idea that somebody might come and criticize her art that she couldn't even put her own name on the painting. She had a pseudonym, another name that she would put on that uh, painting just so it was that nobody would be able to hear or see who it was that actually had painted that painting. Drove her nuts, okay? So to her, uh, the perfectionist, there was that fear of making the wrong choice. To a people pleaser, somebody whose constant focus is on uh, pleasing people, bad is when somebody doesn't like them. No, they're going to do everything possible to, to do and say things that would make them like them and they're going to live in continual fear about that somebody isn't going to like them. So they have to evaluate everything that they're going to say and do against that backdrop. What happens if somebody doesn't like me? That would be bad and i got to run around to make sure. Now, to a virtue signaler, this is a newer phrase that's kind of showed up and those are those that are going to, uh, they want to be able to do the right thing and everybody is going to be cognizant of the fact that they are doing the right thing on Facebook. You know, if they're into recycling, they would like people to know that they are a recycler so that everybody can go, wow, what a good person that is. And I'm going to signal my virtue uh, to the world. So bad to someone who struggles with virtue signaling is when people don't see them as more virtuous than anybody else. We kind of call it, sometimes we call this as somebody who's woke. You know, they're woke to the right things and they're not only trying to do the right things, they need other people to know they're doing the right things. Uh, be ashamed to be doing the woke good things and nobody knew about it, right? That would be bad, okay? So, choices. When we take a look at choices, I love um, uh, the, the things that are being written by... Uh, uh, author Greg McEwen, he wrote a book called Essentialism and Effortless with that idea about saying we are constantly in a world of having to choose. Think about in the gospel sense where we're having to choose what we will do. Um, and so 
part of what uh, McEwen wants us to be able to see, and by the way, McEwen is a New York Times bestseller, but he's also a, a former bishop uh, in the church, and he wants us to see that when we choose something, and we're going to say, yes, we're, I'm going to do, of all the things I could do, I'm doing that thing. He said, be very, very aware that when you say yes to this thing, you are also saying no to that thing. In the process of trying to choose what is the good thing, the moment that we spend our time, our money, our focus, we place our heart, whatever it is, on that thing, we are also saying no, not just to that thing, to almost anything else other than that thing. And we don't always necessarily count the costs about what happens if I said yes here, who or what did I say no to? I spent my money on this, what did I not spend my money on over here? What are we saying no to? What makes that particularly tough, I think, uh, as people trying to get back to live with God, is that we are constantly then looking for what is trying to do the good thing, the right thing, and avoid the, the bad things. But the problem is this, is that when, in reality, when we choose a good thing, it was a good thing for me to be here. We're, we're kind of stuck with that idea that, you know what, there, while I was doing this good thing, there might have been a more gooder thing might have been more better doing that thing instead of this one. Oh my gosh, maybe that this was good. Was that better? I don't know. And in the middle of doing the that's good and that's more gooder, oh wait a minute, there's an also another good over here. That also would have been good. And wait a minute, is there something gooder than that one? I got a good, I got a more gooder, I got an also good, there's another gooder, and wait a minute, uh, this is not as good, but I said yes to doing this. So now I'm doing the thing that I know there's better things, but I, I said yes to somebody under the spell of their asking, I said yes, and then later I went, oh, I can't believe I said that. Uh, so I'm actually doing the thing that is not as good, but there were other better things because I was a people pleaser. I didn't want to be. I wanted, didn't want to let them down. But but I'm still looking for the good one thing uh, that is better than the, all the things. See the, see the dilemma we caught up in? There is this myriad of things that we battle uh, and so one of the things that the world tries really hard to teach us in the media and social media especially is, well, you can do it all. Do it all. Do the whole thing. Yes, you can do this. Yes, you can uh, get up early uh, and exercise and make sure that the house is really clean. And yes, you can get 
all the kids uh, to school and volunteer in their school and and by the way get them to uh, their uh, soccer practice because they're on the elite soccer team which is going to be practicing every night and spending every weekend in another town while you're competing in tournaments at the same time as their their older brother is in the concert band at school and he has band competitions all over the place and we're going to do all of this and by the way I should be doing my calling and I should be able to be uh, cooking nutritious meals and probably be able to have a little small business on the side and by the way my yard looks awful but I'm going to take care of it. In other words we're being told that we can do everything and what McEwen is trying to say in essentialism is we can't do everything. The minute that we choose one thing, we're saying no to something else. And so we're trying to find out how it is that we begin to balance all of these things so that this caught up in, that we might be that hero good person that everybody loves who is dragging at night and, and feeling a lot of stress. So our struggle then is that we live in a world of choices and we live in a world of pressures where we're trying to do everything and we end up doing everything poorly or we do everything pretty good but at the same time we get exhausted from doing all of that. So, uh, I, since someone once said, and I thought this was pretty clever, so how often, when you're trying to do all of that, how often do you feel like that we spend a lot of time doing things we absolutely detest. To buy things we really don't need. With money we really don't have. Why? Well, to impress the people we don't even like. <laughs> and and we're, we're doing that because we're running around like crazy and trying to make some choices and decisions in our life, uh, but doing everything not well. I think it's interesting, we've been kind of walking through the Old Testament here. We find Joshua, and and remember Joshua's statement, he's going to say, just as the, the people are coming finally into the Promised Land, after all they're wandering around in, uh, in the desert, Joshua's going to say to them, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, so here's my question with that. They're still having to choose. And after all that they had seen in the wilderness, and they watched the Red Sea be parted, and they watched the plagues come, and and they saw Passover and they've been eating manna in the wilderness. They've been watching this God do all these amazing things. And, and Joshua's having to say to them, what do you choose? Which God are you going to choose? The God of the Amorites or the God of the Canaanites? Or are you going to choose this God? And, and we might sit back and think, well, what choice given... The, the, the God that parted the Red Sea or the God of idols, which one are you going to choose? Well, as we're going to talk about, uh, the problem when it comes to choices is that um, whenever we have had 
uh, people that we know and love that don't make healthy choices and we're saying, what were you thinking? Of course you should do this. Why would you have to choose something else other than the God that parted the Red Sea? How come you're going to do bad stuff? <laughs> Think about how many times you've gone to a teenager and you're saying, why did you do that? And their answer is, I don't know. I don't know. Well, they may not, but something caused them to say yes to this and by doing that, saying no to this thing over here. Why do we do that? Well, I want to lead into this a little bit. Uh, one of my uh, uh, mentors at uh, BYU when I was there was Professor uh, Alan Bergen. It was a uh, world-renowned uh, uh, psychologist. Um, and one of the things that he told us on a number of occasions, he says, you need to recognize, especially when we're trying to understand why it is that people make the decisions that they make, is that we need to recognize that everyone is born into this world with agency. But some are more free than others. And he would say, he, he, he was a practicing psychologist for years in New York City. And he would say that the people in uptown Manhattan had more agency, more choice, than kids growing up that day in, in Harlem who believed that their possible choices were much smaller than those who had more affluence. And I think there's a, uh, some truth to the fact that we are only as free as the options that we feel like we had. That's why Adam and Eve had to take the fruit so that they could become as the gods and know good and evil, which means that they had choices that they could now pick from. Before they took the fruit, they really didn't have the choice of choosing good because it, they, hadn't, they didn't have the option of evil. They had to partake of the fruit. That's why the, it was a fortunate fall, falling forward. Now, as we look then at the decisions that we make, and we're trying to decide of all the things that we can do, what kind of things influence your decisions? Can, can I just throw in just a few that I think have an impact on us? So these are what I call decision influencers. Addictive behavior is a, is a decision influencer. It chooses whether you can do this or that because your addiction to that or your habitual doing of something causes you to say, well, I can't do this. I have to say no to this because I've got to do this. Uh, I, I've, I've got to handle that. I need this. Okay, That's a decision influencer. The voices that we listen to become decision influencers. Think about the voices that you listen to that guide your decisions. And those can be uh, voices from conference. Those can be voices from the scriptures. They, that can be voices that you listen to on podcasts or social media or in the news or friends or family members. What voices tell you what is good and what is bad? What voices do you listen to? And what voices do you say no to? When you get to that point, then you have to say, my decision is 
to, to choose and listen and follow those voices, but what voices are you not listening to and not following as a result of listening to those voices? And do those voices cause you more stress than those voices? How about sometimes a decision influencer is our just our own image, how we see ourselves, how we view ourselves, how we're framed by our past. Those kids growing up in Harlem had a self-image and a self-view of themselves that was different from a, a little the same age child growing up in Upper Manhattan who saw greater choices because they saw that they had greater choices because they saw themselves differently. Uh, how about our understanding of God based on how we see God and how we think God sees us? Do we really believe that we're a child of God with infinite potential or do we think that we're kind of back row saints and we just don't quite deserve nearly as much? That will influence whether we even do something as simple as speak up in church, speak up in a Sunday school class. It's based on that idea and that choice to whether you raise your hand or not may come simply down to your own image or how it is that you understand God and how you think God sees you. All of those come together to frame what options we can see in front of us. And because sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we do have choices. We do have the ability to make decisions. So we're trying to get at um, what it is that uh, we're, we're trying to decide when we're having to say, what exactly is essential in our life and what is it that we're choosing to do which is actually not essential but it's drawing energy and time and resources away from what is important to us and what is essential. I think for instance there have been a couple of times that I've been around I go to the Church History Museum and you can see one of the original hand carts that came across uh, the plains pulled all the way by uh, pioneers. Now think about for them, when they said um, we're, we're arriving first of all at the departure place and we have to put everything for our family in this handcart. Think about how many things they would have to leave behind as well as they're going to put in here. If I had to say to you today, you're going to have to pull a handcart across a thousand miles of wilderness and everything that is, everything you want to take has to go inside there, you'd have to start the process of going, well then what do I need to eliminate? What do I need to leave out versus what am I going to take? See, because the, the, the children of Israel had the same kind of thing. As they're going to leave Egypt, they had to say, okay, what few things am I going to take with me? And what things do I leave behind? I, I think a lot when, we, when, when you visit Nauvoo and you think about um, someone like uh, Brigham Young's wife who had to make a decision and had to decide that she couldn't take her fine china that she enjoyed in Nauvoo so much, but the idea that somebody else would get that china drove her nuts. So she actually buried her china out of the backyard so nobody else could get it, but she knew she couldn't take it with her. Okay, so if this is also your time and energy and you can only pack into this thing 
where you can put your time and energy and resources and heart. What would you put in here and what would you leave out? What would you say yes to? And what are you going to have to say no to? What is it that doesn't make the trip? What about what you pack into your mind? What is it that isn't essential that you keep packing uh, into your mind? How about into your heart? What essential things go into your heart and what kind of things are you going to have to say no to? Brother McEwen makes an interesting um, example of this. And he talks about the fact that, take a look at your closet. And he says, in your closet, you have clothes that you love and you love to wear. And then you look at your closet. I look at my closet and I think, there are things there that I sort of like. They're nice, but I never wear them. And then I see things in my closet I would never wear, but there they sit, and they take up space in my closet. And at the end of the day, if I take all the clothes that are in my closet, I probably wear the same clothes about 80% of the time. Another 20% gets worn when it's laundry day and the, my other clothes are dirty. And then there is this group that just never gets worn and it just sits there. And, and what would happen if we actually went into our closet and we removed all the non-essential clothes and we only kept the things that we really, really liked? Think how much more space we'd have. That's our life. It's a matter of saying yes to the essential things, and that's going to be a relatively few things that we do well, and starting to say no more often to the things that are kind of okay, but we never really kind of get excited about them, but they take up time in our mind and in our heart, and they get in the way. What stops us from doing that? Well, a couple of last things uh, before, we, we, before we finish here. One of my earliest, fondest memories is that uh, as we were growing up, about the last thing we would do every night going to bed is that we would watch uh, the show Perry Mason. And uh, for some of the younger ones don't know about Perry Mason, the older ones will. Perry Mason was this great sh television show ongoing about... Uh, this attorney that was going to defend his clients and it was and the final scenes were always in the courtroom and and it was almost you'd wait for it and we could almost start to count about eight minutes tell or five minutes tell Perry Mason is going to figure out who it's going to do and almost always he would stand in the courtroom and he'd say as it turns out my client didn't do this because and then he turned and he would say and she's the one that shot him uh, because she had the means and this is who it is. And he would accuse somebody in the courtroom. And about most of the time, that person would stand up and say, yes, I did it. I had to do it. I had no choice. What else could I do? It was going to expose me to the world. Yes, I'm sh I shot him. And, I, and I, I'm glad that I did it. And then they will break down and then they would arrest them. But almost always the big reveal would happen in there. But it was always preceded by, 
I had to do it. Don't you see? I had to do it. I had no choice. When really they had every choice. But it was just this common way of looking at that. So, here's my challenge for today. Here, here's the truth that we struggle with. We too, like the, like the defendants in the courtroom, might be saying, I had to do it. Don't you see? I have no choice. It's all I can do. Uh, I had to shoot him. <laughs> I know you want to think about that sometimes with certain family members, but you don't. So the first rule of choice is you have a choice. That is the, that is the choice. We have a choice between sometimes good, better, and best. Uh, but we have a choice. Now, be, let's be really aware. Our joy in this life and our eternal joy in the next life depends on this. Recognizing and focusing on what is essential to us. What is the most important thing to us and putting our time and energy and focus there. Our joy in this life and the next rides on that. This working to eliminate those activities that crowd out are essentials. That means when I'm saying yes to these things, what do I need to say no to? We might have to ask, why did I choose to do that when it really wasn't something I liked, like the clothes in my closet? They're sort of there and I don't really like them. So why did I choose to spend more time doing that and less time doing the, the things that were really essential? What am I saying? What, what do I need to say no to so that I can say yes to the things that are much more essential to me? Finally, what that probably means to us, if we take this to heart, is that it probably means doing less things better than doing more things with stress and anxiety and a loss of spirit because we just get strung out too much. We need to be able to do less better and do uh, and to do those things that bring joy to us. Those are essentials and screen out those things that are not. I bear you my testimony that the most essential things that we have are those things that have eternal import. And the more that we focus on that, the more we bring joy to them, to us, and to the eternities. I bear you my witness that that's true. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.